Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Acamedia's podcast series, Talking Television in a Pandemic. I'm Christine Becker, Associate Professor in the Department of Film, Television, Theater at the University of Notre Dame and Acamedia co-host and co-producer. I've been lurking in the background of each of the previous episodes, recording them, so I'd like to thank the co-organizers of this series, Hunter Hargraves, Lynn Joyrich, and Brandy Monk-Payton, for inviting me to step forward as moderator for this special episode. As we were finishing the last batch of episodes, we decided we wanted to curate an additional conversation centered around non-North American experiences and global geographies. The coronavirus pandemic has evolved differently in different regions, so we wanted to explore the televisual consequences of those varied experiences. We also want to consider in this episode the intersecting pandemic of racism beyond the borders of the U.S. and investigate global impressions of the Black Lives Matter movement and local versions of cultural protest. And to talk about these issues, we have with us literally from around the globe. You're hearing people in the morning, afternoon and late evening here uh, in this collection of voices. We've got Liz Jufre, who is a senior lecturer in communication at University of Technology, Sydney. Her work covers television from a variety of angles, um, including broadcast and post-broadcast, as well as specialist types of ordinary television, like children's music and comedy television. Welcome to the podcast, Liz. Thank you. Hello. Uh, Next up, Misha Kavka is Professor of Media Studies at University of Amsterdam. She's published widely on gender, celebrity, and affect in relation to television, film, and media technologies. Thanks for joining us, Misha. It's great to be here. Jin Ying Lee is Assistant Professor of Modern Culture and Media at Brown University, and she focuses her teaching and research on media theory, animation, and digital culture in East Asia. Thanks for joining us, Jin Ying. Hello. Thank you for having me here. Francesca Sobande is Lecturer in Digital Media Studies at Cardiff University, and her work focuses on issues related to race, gender, structural inequalities, media, and the marketplace. Hi, thank you for involving me in today. And finally, Jeff Scheibel is lecturer in film studies at King's College London, and much of his research is located on the boundaries of cinema, considering its relationship to other media, forms of textuality, and cultural practices. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you all so much for for taking time. And all you listeners didn't get to hear the technological problems we had at the start to get all of the world's internet working together. So I'd really thank my my participants for um, for sticking around through that. And I'd like to start with just some opening impressions from you all about television and the pandemic from the standpoint of your particular region, community, research area, own personal viewing practices, whatever you'd most like to speak to. And since this episode is about leaving the United States, I'd like to do so by traveling from west to east from me. So we're going to start right across the pond uh, at the United Kingdom. And we've got Jeff and Francesca coming from there. So uh, Jeff, you want to start us out with some thoughts about television, the pandemic from your perspective? Sure. Um, Before the pandemic, I'm used to seeing cinema in public and movie theaters. I'm used to watching TV at home. And now the ratio is sort of shifting so that all of those things are happening domestically. And so I think television, which is already a very amorphous medium is becoming even more amorphous in interesting ways. And so I have a different relationship to TV too that I've been interested in where it's it's become more interactive. So if I think about like the different devices I have at home, like it's a TV, a cell phone and a laptop. And, you know, one of the things I'm interested in thinking about are the different ways countering media on them differently, as I'm sure we all are. So I've taken on a much more interactive relationship with my TV, where now I'm doing, I'm using it to like watch yoga videos or workout videos and and becoming much more interactive in ways that I've never been with my TV before. Um, and my laptop has really become more of a virtual office with like Zoom meetings and things like that. Um, my phone usage has probably more or less stayed the same, but I think the ratio has shifted in that I'm just spending more time on it since I use it for social media and I think there's less sort of social interactions outside. So anyway, I think I'm interested in the different kinds of ratios among media within media ecologies and how TV fits into that and how it might be shifting and opening up new kinds of questions about consumption and viewing. Yeah. Uh, And then staying in the United Kingdom, but moving over to Wales, Francesca, any thoughts? Yeah, so something that I've been thinking about a lot, actually, is in the context of Britain, the different ways that lockdown and the global pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic and responses to structural anti-blackness is unfolding and depending on which part of Britain we're dealing with. So certainly something I've been really aware of is the importance of local media 
whether that's local television, local theatre performances, just the fact that right now, as much as we're dealing with global media ecologies, there's also a real need to turn to the hyperlocal and find out about the different ways lockdown is being experienced, the different ways that communities are coming together. Black liberationist organising is occurring within Britain, between Wales, England, Northern Ireland and Scotland, but also with a focus on transnational solidarities. So in terms of some of my own media experiences, I'm conscious that I am often curating timelines or seeking out media that means I'm informed about what's happening in Wales, whilst also thinking about family in Scotland and being aware that only a few hours away by train is London, and to maybe give a very clear example of what this can mean on a day-to-day basis is last week I was asked to be involved in something that would require me taking part in an interview in a particular location beyond my household. And because being involved in this required meeting a person in Wales who had travelled from England, there was a little bit of a disconnect in terms of understanding about the lockdown measures in Wales versus England. And I think there's so much information that's circulating right now through the media as part of different flows. And it's really important when trying to identify and combat misinformation and disinformation that we're sensitive to the different ways that even within the one country, people are experiencing what's happening right now. So I'm thankful for the fact that I can stay up to date about what's going on around the world. I'm thankful for the different ways that digital technologies enable that. But I'm also really appreciative of grassroots media efforts in my immediate surroundings and thinking about what it means to also ensure that media is not always occurring in a digital setting. We are aware of the fact that not everybody can actually participate in some of the media flows that tend to be at the focus of the the research that is a part of disciplinary spaces and academic environments we're involved in. Really interesting perspective there on on the kind of varied layers and dimensions of media that we can interact with right now. Uh, We're going to move further into Europe, Western Europe, Misha in Amsterdam. So thoughts from you, Misha? Well, I want to pick up on both of the things that Francesca and Jeff have been talking about. Certainly, Francesca is very right. I've really kind of noticed the importance, the renewed importance of local media and particularly local television. But I think in Western Europe, because there's a very strong public broadcasting tradition and the Netherlands is really interesting in that it has a high number of broadcasters. Um, We kind of need to think about the number of broadcasters operating in the Netherlands, like the old medieval guilds or something, right? They've, um, they've, they've grown up in, from very, very localized regional um, spaces. And it's quite interesting to note for me that in many ways, despite lockdown, we didn't see a lot of immediate changes in the local media, except for a renewed sense that television is where the crucial information is going to come from, but also that television is where the crucial sense of community and taking care of each other is going to come from. And I'm really sort of struck by, because these have been really strong discourses right throughout the COVID crisis, the sort of the discourse of looking out for one another, taking care of one another, taking care of the most vulnerable in your community. And it's interesting to me which media or which local organizations or even whether it's a matter of politicians or whether it's a matter of kind of community organizations, who's actually talking to that. And I think in Western Europe, a lot of that has really come to television and to the public broadcaster. So in the in the Netherlands, there has been no immediate visible change to the news, except that the newscasters um, stand further away from each other in studio than they did before. But at the same time, the, um, the NPO, for instance, which is a major public broadcaster in the Netherlands, um, at the end of March launched a number of YouTube-based series, particularly one that broadcast every week called Not Alone, which was about picking up on kind of initiatives amongst the public and ways in which they were getting together, taking care of each other, even under lockdown conditions. Um, in Germany, the um, the main public broadcaster, ZDF, took a few weeks and made a whole bunch of short films, about half an hour each, called Love Now. Um, yes, Liebe. Um, so kind of the sense that television, and maybe this is, you know, if this is what I keep coming back to always in my work, but the television is the source and the site of intimacy and community. 
And I think um, in, in Western Europe, there's been a strong sense of that. There's also been a sense of what's been happening all over the place of people moving, people having to kind of a lot of the talk show hosts, for instance, or the comedy hosts not being able to go to studio and hence kind of doing their things from home and um, broadcasting that over YouTube. And so there's kind of ever more material on YouTube. But of course, you have to go to the ancillary media to find out what it is that you're looking for. Right. So you get that either from your kind of local TV stations or you get that from the newspapers or from the radio. Some sense that this person has kind of gone over is doing something on YouTube. Go go check it out. But also what um, struck, struck me as quite funny is that a lot of these people are, are trying to be bloggers. They're trying to be YouTube bloggers for the first time and they, they kind of don't get it yet. You know, so there's a sort of a kind of a misrelationship with the camera or there's way too much clutter in the frame. You know, this is like you're kind of watching people who are so used to the professional organization of the studio. So if they're doing the stuff that isn't absolutely the main work of local news or local television and they're having to move their things for a couple months or three months over to YouTube, then they're sort of learning the ropes of how to vlog. So that's, that's been quite interesting to me, but really what I'm noticing is in a way a certain kind of kickback to the importance of local television as site of community, which I think is, is really in line with what Francesco was telling us about, but also in line with what Jeff was saying. Um, local television is, of course, globally available. Right. So it's not that I'm only watching Dutch or, or German stuff. I mean, I, I am watching a lot of American local news. It's just that I'm doing it in fragments on YouTube because that's how I get access to it. I am, you know, geoblocking means that I can't actually get access to it as broadcast television or even better. I'm watching the satirical late night programs and I'm getting access to my news through them, right? So it's the fragment within the fragment. Um, but that's kind of another way of taking part in these global flows. And then the only other thing I'll say is that all of my evenings, I've just been pulling the Netflix blanket over me, um, which is absolutely no different from what I was doing before lockdown. All right. Uh, let's move now to Jin Ying. And you are at Brown University, but as I understand it, you spend considerable time in China and East Asia is also a focus of your work. So thoughts from that perspective uh, during the pandemic period? Um, I want to echo both Francisca and Misha in terms of this notion of multidimensionality and multi-layered structure in terms of relationship between the local and the global in the geography, both the media geography, the pandemic geography, as well as a cultural political geography that the local and the global constantly shifting and also there's a national in between. Particularly, I think one example I noticed is that in the early days of the pandemic, the original epicenter, you know, the city of Wuhan, formed a very, very different local experience vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the China. And there was a conflict relationship between the local experience and the television as a media and how we situate television is it really located in the local experience or is it national propaganda for the Chinese case or is it more about global expose? But what is often um, I notice is there's subtle tension between the residents of Wuhan and the national television, particularly the state-run national television, the Chinese, national, uh, Chinese central television, CCTV. Particularly in the heydays of the pandemic in China, the national television took the role of mobilization of nationalism and the patriotism. Uh, advocating for an uh, image of the nation coming together, fighting against this national crisis. This sense of un national unity and the patriotism sounds very ironic, even brutal for the citizens of Wuhan who felt they're being abandoned or even sacrificed and isolated the quarantine and lockdown, feel they're being sacrificed for the sake of the national benefit or for the public health of the global benefit. Um, and especially in the early days, um, particularly it is being argued that the Chinese national television had played a key role in the alleged uh, suppression of the information of the epidemic. A lot of Chinese people have remembered uh, two weeks before the, uh, the outbreak, there was a national television um, fragment that publicly accusing the whistleblowers in Wuhan, accusing them of uh, disseminating the fake news. And those news clips has been widely distributed on social media, particularly uh, when one of the whistleblowers, Dr. Li Wenliang, eventually died as a hero in pandemic. And the day he was died and it was being remembered by the whole nation, the internet, there was 
very subtle and quick uh, online demonstration in China advocating for freedom of speech. But one of the key image is this minutes of segment from national television news accusing him as distributing fake news. So there's a tension between the local experience and the national television. But this tension also quickly shifting. It's very unstable, uh, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the uh, People's Citizen Report on social media. For example, in Wuhan, vis-a-vis -vis the national television with advocating for national unity, there's also local diaries, particularly the so-called Fengchengrizi diary, digital diary on social media from citizens in the quarantine city. They feel they're being locked down, so need to tell their own story. Um, my Chinese friend has been distributing those diaries online on social media very frequently, and I receive them almost daily. And my mother, for example, who has been a religious watcher of television, but she began to uh, supplementing her religious watch of television with religious following of those social media diaries, particularly because she has a lot of college classmates from Wuhan. And she began to use both media in the same way, but also in a very juxtaposition manner. Um, and she's forwarding me a lot of those diaries. But interestingly, those diaries in the early days was advocated as a local experience, but because the narrative quickly shifted, after Chinese government successfully controlled the pandemic, so the narrative shifted from the national crisis to a national triumph, and that people's perception of national television also changed from the early days, a criticism of national television as propaganda to later celebrating as effective mobilization machine for the national unity. And so therefore the diary again, also being perceived differently at the later days. So it's no longer being celebrated the local experience but what was particularly by some nationalist person, people's particularly by national news media, those digital diary being condemned as anti-China, as anti-thesis of the nation, particularly being labeled as quote unquote global conspiracy against China. So this kind of is gonna make me thinking this multidimensionality and this layered relationship of media in this very complex geography of both the pandemic and the geopolitics. Hmm, that's fascinating. Um, now we're going to move over to Australia. And so, Liz, uh, thoughts from you. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. I'm in Sydney at the moment. What's interesting about what's happening here is by the time COVID came around, we'd been glued to our TVs for months because we had the worst bushfires we've had in forever. Well, not quite forever, but it felt like forever, um, depending on who you heard and, you know, what you heard. And thank you to the global community for supporting us too. It felt like we were global news, you know, for what had happened, the natural disasters that had happened here. And we were really following that via our national broadcaster. So just to echo what everybody said about the importance of national broadcasters here, the Australian Broadcasting um, Corporation, the ABC, is really what brings us together. We have two public service broadcasters, actually, but the, the ABC is the one that I guess gets the biggest traction and really is the thing that would certainly during the disasters, it, it was the thing that everybody was glued to. So it's sort of from October last year, on I felt like that was just on all the time what's happening where are people in threat and literally you know do we move do we not move what do we do we kind of got out of that I think I feel like we had about a week and a half <laughs> and then all of a sudden it was a question of back glued to the ABC to say to us okay what's happening we'd heard these little trickles about things that had happened in China we'd heard rumors about um, Europe and then when things started to land here it was straight on the ABC. What I've found really interesting though is because of just the way that my life is and everybody lives in a fragmented um, media landscape but because I'm sharing lockdown with two very small children I'm watching a lot of children's TV and what's been really interesting about that is the children's arm of the national broadcaster and how they're dealing with what's happening. So if you watch, I mean, of course, we do on demand a lot. There is a lot, a lot, a lot of Peppa Pig and the Australian cartoon Bluey, which I highly recommend if you just need seven minutes of escapism. It's beautiful escapism. But in between all of that and the wiggles, of course, I apologise in advance if it's made it to you and into your life and will never come out again. 
But what's been really interesting is the way that those messages, those public service messages and those public health messages have been delivered by the national broadcaster to those children, to those small audiences. So it started with little things like, well, the Wiggles did a song called uh, a Wash Your Hands song and a few different other Wash Your Hands ones have come in. I believe Sesame Street's done one now. I know that the Muppets have done one. They, they're sort of popping up all over, well, all over the world now in different children's languages and different children with different children's media, different children's celebrities. Um, there was one in Indigenous, focused on Indigenous um, communities here in Australia too. And then all of a sudden we were getting um, this kind of crossover. So then the Wiggles did this song called the Social Distancing Song, which was Why Can't I Go and See Nana? You know, and what does that mean? And all of that stuff, which was simultaneously beautiful and heartbreaking because as the adult in the room, you've got that song in your head, but you're also thinking, how do I explain to this little person, no, we can't go to the park. No, we can't go and see Nana. No, we can't go and do those things. So to me, that's what's been really striking, really emotional too. Maybe it's just because I'm very hormonal as I breastfeed. I think, oh my God, everything makes me cry at the moment. But it... um that's really struck me is how children's television has been a thing that's been really kind of purpose-built and changed on the fly. I've been extremely impressed by the, I mean, the ABC always reacts very, very quickly. The way that they were working during the disasters, they're also working very, very quickly. Ironically now, their budget has been cut again by our current government, and I can talk to you later about that for anybody that is interested, but, you know, their resources are being slashed again while more people are still looking to them. Um, so obviously we're looking at that broadcaster to look after us. We're also looking to New Zealand because New Zealand are our cousins who, frankly, we're very jealous of at the moment. <laughs> they seem to be led by somebody who's got who's, who's much better at being much more direct about what they want, who wasn't in Hawaii during a national crisis like our Prime Minister was during the bushfires. You know what I mean? So we've got, we're having kind of that interesting relationship. We're looking to New Zealand a lot more. Of course, we get British and the BBC a lot. We get fragments from America and it's really hard to know what's reliable from America. Basically, I, I relate to Misha's idea of, well, not just idea, her experience of just turning on Tonight Show hosts and thinking, is that better? Does Colbert know what he's talking about? I think he probably knows more than I get Rachel Maddow a bit, but maybe that's who I trust. So, um, yeah, that's what's happening down here. It's all um, one disaster to another, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Well, and speaking of being jealous, hearing a number of you speak about the power of your public broadcasters in your country makes me extraordinarily jealous because we do have PBS here and NPR, but you know, much smaller operations than anything like the BBC or, or ABC. And it also makes me think of the notion, the way in which the pandemic um, and these moments of crisis have intensified what television has always been. And then also like Jeff brought up, there's also then these kind of shifting and new operations that come across. I'm also struck by how quickly we're in a uh, conversation about television. And then you talk about digital media or social media, how quickly it becomes beyond that. Um, so I'm curious your thoughts about that, the ways in which your experiences with media consumption, with these technologies are either, or in some ways, again, or kind of a, an intensification of things that were already endemic or, or part and parcel of, of these media, and then which the pandemic has exposed of changing things, fundamentally shifting the ground uh, underneath the media, and which of those elements you find most compelling in your own um, perspectives. Sorry to jump straight in, but just to pick up again on that, the relationship between, say, the, national, the bushfires and everything that had just happened and then the crisis here, we had a period where we had what felt like no leadership, no government leadership. There was a big concern here when, when that crisis first kicked off that literally our leaders were out of the country. Nobody was saying anything. Whereas now we're getting public briefings, not just daily, but it seems like hourly, not just at a federal level, at a national level, but at a state level and sometimes at um, you know, a council level. And that's where people are turning to television because they're like, what do I trust? What do I do? You know? So for a while, the prime minister was giving broadcasts. Well, it seemed like at seven o'clock each night. Then if you were following it, he would, he would move that around a bit, almost as if he was going to then circumvent what the state leaders were going to say to try and undermine them, because there's been quite a lot of interplay around who's got the right to call off what and who's got the right to lock down what. So television was becoming this weird kind of battleground, you know, but people would still, I feel, go to television to shut out the noise of social media to say, hang on, what's official? 
What am I actually meant to be doing tomorrow? Am I allowed to leave the house? Am I not? You know, can I go to the park? Can I not? What am I meant to be doing? So I I do think particularly in our context, people were looking to that one apparently official place where you're going to get the word of the law as it was at the moment around what we could be doing and whether or not we'll we'll keep that after this I don't know but that's certainly something that I can't remember us having these national addresses I can't remember us having and we were looking for it immediately before so to have it come in and the joke here is that our Prime Minister Scott Morrison his his nickname is Scotty from marketing because his marketing was so bad during the fire that during the um, bushfires that he mucked it up so badly that now it all looks like it's been stage managed a bit too much if you know what I mean but we're looking to the stage and we're looking to TV to be that stage for us I think. Misha? I wanted to make a slightly broader point. I'm really struck by the fact that we spent so many decades thinking about television as the medium that is. Television as the domestic medium. Television as the intimate medium. Television as the medium, the always-on medium. And then, of course, for much of this century, we've been asking questions, and you know, a number of people here have written about that, sort of about what has become of this medium. Is it still a medium? If it is still a medium, then on what basis? But always kind of thinking about that basis mostly in technological terms, or if not technological, then in technical terms. And I'm beginning to wonder to what extent the crisis, the current crises, is really making us think, rethink television in content terms. Because what I'm really hearing from all of us is tying television much more to its factual, immediate, informative, but also feeling base. Right. And we're not really talking right now about the sort of fictional production aspects, right, which I know that we're also watching a lot of. But that sense of television as the incidental and immediate, the thing that uh, that accompanies us and can can speak to us, but that we can also that that has our trust, that has our ear, which is not strictly the same thing as this dramatic, comedic, fictional programming aspect of television that I also love. But I'm wondering whether now this crisis is beginning to drive a wedge between these two kinds of TV. And we're thinking much more about television as that immediate, informative, factual, keeping us grounded, telling us where we are on the ground. Jinying? Uh, to echo that point, I'm also thinking, we talk about the shifting relationship between television and the geography in terms of local and global. But another thing I noticed in this pandemic is the shifting relationship between television and the private public tension and the notion of also surveillance. What I noticed in China, especially during the pandemic, the shifting attitude toward national television also somewhat related with people's shifting attitude toward the privacy. Um, as I mentioned, television was received no longer as simply a national propaganda center, but eventually received as national mobilization, the unity, and the uh, authoritative information. Part of the image has something to do with the national television keep publishing a lot of private information about those confirmed cases. You literally will heard the names of the neighbors who were tested positive and know the numbers and address of them publicly. And surprisingly, people embrace the embrace privacy. And people often think Asian people are not concerned with privacy and surveillance, which are not exactly true. I think Asian people are just not that vocal against surveillance and invasion privacy. However, this pandemic and the televised publication of those private information during the pandemic, indeed shifting the conversation. I begin to see a lot of vocal support of this releasing of the information on television. And when the television, especially lots of local television initially hesitate to release those information, people actually don't like it. They want to know who's who in their neighborhood get confirmed, which is very dangerous. And also it's a shifting conversation not only happening in television, but also on social media, on platform, particularly digital platform. I think you all heard that China gave this health code. And, you know, health code, uh, the QR code, give you like orange, red, or green. At the beginning, people think it's, oh, it's 1984. But even in China, originally people don't like it. They feel it's too much, too much surveillance. But later, they actually begin to embrace it. Especially I heard my, my parents at the beginning, they refuse to carry cell phone, even go to the supermarket because they're afraid they're being surveillance. But later, 
when they heard there was someone getting harmed in the neighborhood, they begin to rigorously check in their health code, whether it's a green or red. It begin to become their ritual, almost religion. They report to me every day whether they're green or yellow. I get really, really paranoid about it. And they're actually thinking, why U.S. doesn't adopt it? Why you guys don't have it? Is your health code in U.S. supposed to be green or orange? I was so paranoid by that. And I begin to thinking, since one and how that conversation shift and that happened both in television and on social media as well and this is something we should really be aware of the sense of privacy and surveillance how that tension and the dynamic has been quickly shifted during the pandemic francesca i also see forms of active and strategic disengagement occurring so on the one hand we've been speaking about the different ways that has been maybe an intensified engagement with digital media and television. And I know certainly comfort viewing and escapism has played a big part in the different ways I'm returning to old shows and re-watching things because I know exactly how they end. But I'm also aware of the fact that different aspects of the, again, whether it's the local, national or global media landscape, media depictions and narratives are very traumatic for people to be dealing with right now whether that's content and media that relates to the COVID-19 pandemic, what's happening to Black people in the US, Britain and around the world. So I know when I think back over the course of the last few months, there were certainly times when I was trying to watch as much and listen to as much as I could to stay informed what was happening and then really feeling the, the impact of that in terms of sort of my mental health and my well-being. So I'd be conscious on other days that I'd actually need to sort of disengage from some of what is circulating and that that rapid sharing of you know whether it's user-generated content and recordings of what people are doing and what is happening to people so i think there's an interesting duality really in terms of potential hyper consumption or the 24-hour cycle of stuff that has been there for a long time and then we also see that there are people actively saying i'm going to remove myself from these elements of the media that are out there or I'm going to actively turn away from mainstream media and turn to what's happening on more of a DIY grassroots level. So that's just something that I, I keep thinking about and also being really mindful of who is behind the media that I'm engaging with. So when I'm retweeting something, you know, how accurate is that information or who is putting that message out there? And again, these are things that people have been thinking about for a long time. And I'm sure many of us as part of our, our work have been, been looking at and dealing with but it feels that all of this stuff is especially heightened right now. And I keep thinking about longer term, will we see some significant shifts in terms of how people are sharing and engaging with media in different ways and on different platforms? And also just thinking about how surveillance right now factors into what people are doing and sharing online. In particular, when I think about the risks that those who are involved in black liberationist organizing are navigating every day. Jeff? I guess one thread I feel like that has come up across some of these responses is distrust of the official or of official news or information that I think um, I very much feel here and, and experience here in the UK as well as I know a lot of people in the US and around the world are too, right? So there is this sense that media is a virus too, right? Like there are so many ways of thinking about the concept of viral media, but like I do definitely feel like there is this way that information is infecting us rather than informing us in so many ways. Um, and so a lot of the responses we see are perhaps a response to the situation of media being a virus or being viral. Well, it's also been common in the U.S. watching the Black Lives Matter movement play out that, you know, racism is is part of the pandemic or a twinned pandemic that is interacting with the coronavirus pandemic. So I'm curious about that aspect in terms of the global perspective on that. Anything from the ways in which the Black Lives Matter protests have spread or, of course, in China, for instance, with the Hong Kong protests, what aspects of protests that have come across your screens around the world? So Black Lives Matter, well, it's protest that's moved to Australia in the local context. So we have the most terrible uh, history. Australia has a black history. Our Indigenous um, people have been absolutely terribly treated and continue to be. So the Black Lives Matter movement has been, uh, has, has manifested itself here in relation to uh, Indigenous deaths in custody, which are still at 
ridiculous rates. There should be no Indigenous people. Well, there's a huge proportion of people in jail are Indigenous people and there's a huge wave of those people being uh, mistreated to the point that they die. And so this is not new, unfortunately. This is far from new um, and this is a wave that has been washing again and again. But what began as solidarity movements with Black Lives Matter, with what happened with George Floyd, so direct solidarity with the American context, began then to be taken up by Indigenous people here and allies saying, actually, you know what, stuff is happening here too. And there's a stark contrast between that and our leaders who our Prime Minister said Australia has no history of slavery, which is just blatantly untrue. So our media in particular, our television started to be flooded with historians showing pictures of Indigenous people in chains as recently as a couple of decades ago saying this is still happening. So um, the Black Lives Matter movement, then of course we had a class issue to come in this as well around um, even just in the last couple of days where lockdown is re-emerging, we're getting second waves. The way communities that have high Indigenous or high non-white communities are being treated in lockdown. We've just recently had seven public housing towers forcibly locked down with no warning, just lockdown, shut down, which is blatant racism, unfortunately, relating directly to the pandemic. Also, we had the the narration and the, and the fear that all these Black Lives Matter protests would undo the good work that we'd done previously. Australia had done relatively well and still have done relatively well in terms of keeping the pandemic at bay, in terms of keeping the death toll down in terms of keeping transmission down, but there was this big fear that apparently Black Lives Matter protests were going to undo that. Well, the week before, there was a bunch of protests that were related to a Christian right movement that were allowed. Big health risks came out of that. So, and thankfully, so far, we've not had anything, any second waves tied to the Black Lives Matter protests, but there's been intense media scrutiny on those when those emerge and that and playing out again as as recently as this morning well yesterday morning now there was a very famous right-wing white commentator on morning tv very well known a lady called Pauline Hanson politician who just blatantly racist on breakfast television the breakfast the commercial um outlet that were hosting her then put out a statement saying we won't host her again she's not new she's been around for 25 years now. They knew exactly what they were going to get with her. They put her on because they knew it would be explosive and draw attention back to this issue and her agenda. So Black Lives Matter and the race question in relation to the pandemic in Australia has been really distinct. Um, and as, But to be very clear, it's not that there isn't a solidarity with what's happened in America, particularly with uh, George Floyd. There was a very clear acknowledgement of that and I want to acknowledge that. There wasn't a bandwagoning, if you know what I mean, but the minute our leaders in particular started to say, well, we don't have that problem here, that's when there was a real return and people saying, actually, yes, we do. We really, really do and we need to think about it. Jin I want to echo the Jeff's notion of media being viral or racism being viral. Um, we may also say protest is viral and revolution can be infectious. And anybody that has been part of movement knows that part of movements, the attitude can be infectious too. So when we think about revolution as infectious in a positive way, we must be very aware of it throughout the whole history in the United States in, or the rest of the world in Asia or in the West. Certain race, certain radicalism, certain religion has always been codified as a certain kind of viral infection. We remember during the Cold War, communism was viral infection. During the war on terror, uh, Muslim extremism was considered quote-unquote infection as well. And in China, if you know, uh, probably a lot of you have heard of this so-called education camp of the Muslim population in Xinjiang. And people think the Chinese government don't acknowledge that. Actually, they do. In television, I do see occasionally report about those camps. And they consider those camps as medical facilities. And they consider Muslim religion as some kind of viral infection that has to be cleaned. And I want to emphasize this notion of sanitization that we are all very obsessed with right now, as notion of messiness, how historically those two have been closely 
associated with notion of race, ethnicity, and immigration, the otherness. And that's not simply just Western phenomena. Throughout the whole world, I want to emphasize this kind of discrimination. The racism is not something uniquely American. And be, that's why Black Lives Matter, the reaction to that, it's not simply the global reaction toward American racial problem. It's about everyone's own experience of discrimination and inequality in this so-called post-colonial or neo-colonial, or what we call even intra-colonial situations throughout the whole world. So in the China situation, I noticed clearly parallel and the um, sort of similarity between the television report of the pandemic, the uh, Black Lives Matter protests, and the Hong Kong protests. On the surface level, if you look at television, the state television, the report of Black Lives Matter, the image is very similar. They use a lot of about riots, um, people on the streets, uh, the miserable of the situation seem to be about the failure of the U.S. government in control of the situation of both pandemic and the racial tension. But if you look deeper, how the visual image being circulated, the central theme is not only about the failure of the government, but about certain kind of messiness. For example, when they report the New York pandemic, they use a lot of garbage images or the homeless people emphasizing certain poverty. And when they talk about protest, also they are not really talking about the uh, racial protest, the uh, political demand. They talk about the image a lot about this shattered glass messiness, the dirty streets, right? So the image correlated with the fear of the pandemic as something dirty, messy. And it's almost the failure of the government, the failure to clean the mess. You see the similar image in the Hong Kong protest. They don't talk about what's the political demand. They talk about the mess the garbage, the things on the streets. The thing makes the city unclean. So when they try to give a good image, they send the, uh, the army, not simply to address people, but cleaning those aftermaths. You know, the image of the cleaning and vis-a-vis -vis the protest that something messy needs to be cleaned. And I, we do know this kind of association between the racial others as something messy has a long history throughout the colonization. It's so cliche, we don't talk about it anymore. But because politically, maybe we don't talk about it, it becomes so persistent and it's disseminated globally and incorporated in many different narratives, particularly today in the narrative of the pandemic, public health, hygiene, and the uh, global awareness of the viral infection. And I think I want to pay attention to that particularly because uh, we see that in many positive actions, for example, in the early days, um, the news media is uh, focusing on this Asian seafood markets you know, this very racist image of the market as dirty. I'll just echo how the Chinese media report the Hong Kong protests as something messy or dirty, right? So this kind of radicalism, otherness, and the viral being dirty and clean need to be sanitized is very closely associated with certain kind of power structure, certain kind of colonial discourse. If you think about um, your the slavery, there are a lot of to do with how the slave has to be cleaned, right? So this kind of sanitization image, this obsession with it, can easily be politicalized into certain kind of racial discourses. Francesca? Yeah, so I've got lots of different thoughts about how what's going on right now in terms of Black Lives Matter and Black liberationist organizing is and isn't being depicted in the media. And I think there are lots of questions I've got to do with visibility and just how representations or images that are related to Black Lives Matter organizing and the lives of Black people right now are being weaponized as part of media narratives, ultimately perpetuate these anti-Black points of view, these anti-Black ideas and media that sometimes is sort of repackaged and reframed as being informative in nature when it's part of the very problems and structures that black people on the ground are trying to, to work towards dismantling. So I think something that concerns me is not only when the work of black collective organizers is erased and overlooked, but also I'm concerned about how, how images of them circulate in ways that can result in harm towards them in ways that can put people at risk. So we've seen conversations to do with what it means to be taking photographs of people, to be sharing them online. You know, increasingly we're also seeing different ways that the media and cultural industries are responding to what's happening right now. More often than not, I feel as part of cynical marketing gestures. So we can think about whether or not it's Netflix curating a genre around Black Lives Matter or the fact that The Help is such a popular film right now as opposed to media that actually centers the experiences of black people. 
So although right now I'm trying to hold on to some form of radical hope that really relates to the work of grassroots organisers and people who've been doing this work for a very long time, even though sometimes some people in the media like to suggest otherwise and imply that this is very emergent, it's a new thing when it's not. I'm still very sceptical when it comes to thinking about and looking at how media, again whether it's locally, nationally or globally, is reporting on this and is claiming to represent movements and political positions in ways that are often more damaging than they are accurate. Jeff? I have definitely been struck by uh, what has been a strong identification, I would say, between what's going on in the U.S. and people's reactions to it in the U.K. with all of the protests and um, Black Lives Matter sentiment. And I think a lot of that is probably hard to disentangle from the fact that American culture is so globalized, right? So I think it could be interesting to think about how global America is also being experienced through Black Lives Matter protesting. And just and to pick up on um, Jin Ying's points about hygiene and how they play into it, I was really struck going to Black Lives Matter protests in the UK, how every single person in a, a crowd of thousands of people is wearing masks. Um, but then when you go out, you know, to the grocery store, or to markets, no one wears masks and people like give me dirty looks if they see me wearing a mask, right? So they're, they're, it's a very striking difference and a different way of showing that like wearing a mask is about like caring for others that captures a sentiment that I think you also see across the protests. And I was also thinking one point that is just interesting to me in relationship to conversations about hygiene and cleanliness and the way that, you know, there was so much anxiety about how the virus started in these markets in Wuhan that are selling wildlife, that people are eating bat soup um, and like getting sick from that. I think it's interesting or it would be interesting to think about how Tiger King, you know, comes along and is the first media event of the lockdown and how that in many ways, I think, displaced a lot of anxieties over wildlife, or I guess you could say it like domesticated lots of anxieties about wildlife in China and then made it about these like strange characters in the U.S. who are um, doing all of these illegal activities with other forms of wildlife. So that, that's something that I think is just like an interesting kernel to think about. I was wondering if we would have Tiger King come up in the global episode. So this kind of brings the, the series full circle. Um, Misha, do you have any thoughts to add? I have two points that I'd like to make, which are going to sound a little bit random because they're from different parts of this conversation. But um, one is in line with what Liz had been saying about sort of the spread of the Black Lives Matter protests. And there were um, a couple of very big ones in Amsterdam in direct response to, um, to the George Floyd killing. And they were read very much by government as well as media as dangerous moments, right? Um, extremely risky because of the potential for spreading the virus, et cetera. So, so there was a way in which the protest against, um, against racism, which runs very, very deep through the Netherlands, but particularly deep through its cities and through its um, West Coast cities, where that was kind of contained weirdly by being sort of a question about the containment of the virus. That's one thing I wanted to say. But another thing um, that I wanted to point out, I really, we haven't talked about sports at all. And yet I think it's so central to talking about television kind of under lockdown. But um, I think that it's the, it's the sports figures that are really linking, in many ways, COVID crisis directly to, to Black Lives Matters protests and kind of anti-racist struggles, because it's in a number of countries, certainly across the West, it's the sports figures who are not able to do their job at the moment because their job is so closely tied to being sort of intimate with one another on a pitch in front of TV cameras, who are instead putting so much of their energy into to using their media platforms for anti-racist purposes, right? So that's definitely happening in the Netherlands, it's happening in the UK, it's definitely happening in the US. And I'm really interested in that sort of shift of the sports figures still having the media platform and using it for these political purposes. Um, and the last thing I'm gonna say, Oddest thing that I could say, I don't, it's no way to end a conversation, but in reference to Jing Ying's point about hygiene versus dirtiness and dirt and the long kind of um, dirtiness and messiness associated 
with the other. I have to say that these images of not just kind of the protests in the U.S., but also the rest of the world sending its reporters into the U.S. to talk to people on the ground as to why they're not wearing masks. All of the U.S. is becoming dirty in the eyes of the world. Right? Uh, we haven't talked about anti-Americanism, but it's going through the roof. And our TVs are strong ways in which that's happening. Well, and that's, a, a, I think, a really, I don't know what the right adjective is, but a deeply profound uh, point on which to end this podcast, because we are out of time. But I'm so glad we were able to do this extra episode, because I think you both built on the previous episodes, conversations, and, and pointed to new directions. And so thank you all so much for taking time out to join us, um, to Liz, who had to wake up her baby um, during the course of the conversation. Well, he, w- he woke up. <laughs> uh, okay, all right. Uh, but thank you all so much for, uh, for being here. This was really fantastic. So once again, thank you to Liz Jufre, Misha Kavka, Jin Ying Lee, Francesca Sobande, and Jeff Scheibel. On behalf of the series co-organizers, Hunter Hargraves, Lynn Joyrich, and Brandy Monk-Payton, I also want to thank our sponsors, the Society for Cinema and Media Studies, Acamedia, the Department of Communication at Denison University, and the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame, as well as Bill Kirkpatrick for his help with distributing this series, and Todd Thompson for providing the music and post-production wizardry that made this series possible. This really is our last full episode, but Hunter, Lynn, and Brandy will be back with a short wrap-up episode soon, so you can look for that. We have also chatted about renewing this series and launching a second season in the fall. If that sounds like something you would like to hear, please let us know. And also tell us what kinds of additional topics you'd like to hear about and scholars you'd like to hear from. So you can reach us by email, talkingtelevisioninapandemic at gmail.com, on Twitter using the hashtag TalkTVInAPandemic, and you can go to Facebook, join the Acamedia Facebook group, and then post your questions. So I want to end by thanking again Hunter Hargraves, Lynn Joyrich, and Brandy Monk-Payton for conjuring up this brilliant idea, bringing it to Acamedia, and pulling it off so expertly. And And thanks also to every one of our participants for taking time out of your stressful lives to sit down and chat with us. So uh, this is Chris Becker signing off for Talking Television and Pandemic. Thanks so much for listening and please stay healthy.